Welcome to Forward, a podcast where we introduce you to the humanities. I'm your host, Alison Innes, and each episode I bring you a conversation with one of our researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. In Series 3, we've been focusing on our grad student researchers, and I'm pleased today to introduce to you Genevieve Wilson, an MA student in the Department of English Language and Literature. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, like I do, you've no doubt heard ads for food delivery services like HelloFresh, which deliver meal ingredients right to your door so you can create a home-cooked, Instagram-worthy dinner. Or perhaps you've heard of the keto diet, or maybe you're trying it out yourself. Genevieve has been looking at food discourse in her research. That is, looking at how we talk about food and what that reveals about us and our society. So welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I'm excited to hear more about HelloFresh. I heard you present a paper um, on this topic as part of the Humanities Research Slam event. And I was wondering if you could share with me again, (laughs) refresh my memory and share with the audience um, what you were looking at in in that paper and, and what kinds of ideas you explored there. I was really grateful to have this opportunity to present my research on HelloFresh at the Humanities Research Institute. This project came out of a undergraduate course um, that I was that I was in, in which we were examining the rhetoric of businesses and how this impacts the discourse of our daily lives. And HelloFresh really kind of jumped out to me. Um, a lot of my friends use it. I've never personally used it. You gave it a great introduction, but HelloFresh is a food delivery service that three to four times per week will bring you pre-portioned, pre-prepared meals directly to your door. So all you have to do is put the meal in a pot or a pan, cook it, and then plate the meal to serve. So my argument or my analysis of HelloFresh um, is that HelloFresh works to balance a return to the traditional 50s lifestyle of domestic labor while being driven by the demands of the neoliberal economy. So the neoliberal society we live in, uh, neoliberalism being a market-oriented and privatized economy, results in a need for us to be constantly self-maximizing and self-improving. And HelloFresh allows us the means to do this. HelloFresh offers a quick and convenient solution to giving the consumer the sense of regaining control over the constant demands placed on them by the neoliberal society and the sense that they have the time to then participate in traditional labor. Is it primarily focused at at women? Like, is, is is there a very gendered aspect to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the advertisements are... Um, directed towards women, um, but it's not excluding men by any means. There, one advertisement I, I do focus on is a family dynamic and how you know there's a new baby in the family, and the mom and dad like they can't cook anymore. There's no time. Their lives are so frazzled, and they come at the end of the commercial to say, "Oh, like now we have time to cook again. HelloFresh is so convenient," um, and it's the father figure saying this, but it is the mother in that scene cooking. Um, so you have that, that tension there as well. Mm. It's, it's really, it wants to draw everyone in, but it knows who its demographic really is. Why is it hearkening back to this, this 1950s ideal of, of the, the woman at home who has dinner on the table looking perfect? I think the desire to have this home-cooked meal, it really harkens back to the idea that in making that meal, there's the suggestion of having time to not only make the meal, but having a sit-down family dinner. Um, 
And the only way you can get that is by already having the financial stability and success within the neoliberal sphere. And so by adding this on to. It's one more thing to do. Um, you're, you're, you're at work all day and then you want, but you still want to have that, that meal. It, it absolutely is. But in its, in its presentation, by adding that other, that second thing on, it, it suggests that you have a more put together life. It suggests that not only do you have time to be successful in the neoliberal sphere, but you also have time to be successful in the traditional sphere. And what HelloFresh does is it, is it creates the, the meal to be the entirety of the traditional sphere. So if you can... So the meal kind of comes to represent all the traditional domestic, um, ironing the pillowcases to everything else that that is of the uh, traditional um, domestic goddess, I think they used to call it back in the 90s or 2000s. <laughs> that was the, yeah. <laughs> the trend of, of, of having it all together. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really focus on this idea of having it all together and especially its connection now to the Instagram presentation, the aesthetic presentation of having it together, making this idealized life because the more you do and the more put together um, self that you present offers you a stronger symbolic capital, a term Pierre Bourdieu uses, um, within our cultural society. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the class angle to HelloFresh and their advertising. Yeah. So HelloFresh is targeting a middle class audience. So you have to be able to afford the subscription service to be able to participate with this cultural prestige of having food delivered to you. Uh, the middle class is then removed. Um, yeah. The middle class is removed in some aspects from the average person's reality and is positioned as better than someone who is left to fend for themselves in the chaos of a grocery store. The middle class then maintains an appearance that they can do it all because they have access to HelloFresh and to the conveniences that this put together life really demands. This is in part due to their class position, but as well because HelloFresh makes the consumer put in just a little bit of their labor into putting the meal into a pot or pan and then putting it on a plate. And then you can justifiably say in good faith, I have plated this meal. I have served this meal. The, the control I think that comes in plating the meal comes to represent the entirety of the traditional sphere, as I, as I mentioned. Yet we are actually giving up our control to HelloFresh as HelloFresh does a majority of this work. This formulaic cooking is a good thing and is suggested to be a good thing because it's something we can't screw up. A chef, for example, puts himself into the meal rather than working with pre-portioned ingredients. The, the creation of the HelloFresh meal feels individual because the consumer feels like they are making the meal, which enforces the HelloFresh consumer to feel more free and feel more individual and more in control of their life as they are trying to attain the universal idea of success in their society. So they're really marketing a feeling as much as they are yeah, food. They're absolutely marketing an identity, really. Like, do you want to participate in this cultural identity or do you want to continue to fail? <laughs> <laughs> and then um, 
they leave just enough of the work to to the consumer that you wouldn't get if you like ordered out from a restaurant or something like that, that you, that you can still say that you made it. Yeah, absolutely. It, it positions the fast food as being lazy or unhealthy and that to engage with the HelloFresh meal, you are taking care of yourself. You're taking care of your family. It adds on to the idea of participating within this cultural prestige, culturally prestigious lifestyle. So, so tell me a little bit more about the social media angle because um, I'm I'm on Instagram myself, um, and and I know there's there's often reminders. There there are people I follow who put out reminders that you know what you see on Instagram isn't real life. It's it's highly curated. It's a, it's a highly um, staged. Um, it's 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 a very specific image that 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 it's trying to, to to trying to present. So so how does how does something like HelloFresh kind of feed into and perpetuate some of those stereotypes or expectations? I guess is the better word. Yeah, absolutely. So as I um, as I said, the um, the presentation of the meal um, offers us what Pierre Bourdieu calls symbolic capital. So like recognizing these signs or symbols. So having a plated meal as a form of distinction. So the assembled meal is presented through these posts and offers the user a sense of also being put together because the creation of the healthy meal is part of a lifestyle that everyone desires. And further, because you have time to make this meal and post about it, you obviously have the time to be bettering yourself. What I also think is important to recognize is what food is being presented as well. So the food you eat, I think, says a lot about you. And especially, and HelloFresh recognizes this as well, the diet you're on. I believe that diet culture has taken over a majority of our lives and dictates a lot of our actions and social relationships. Um, and so like the diet we're on comes to represent a lot about who you are as a person. And as I explore in my other research, the keto diet offers the consumer a, a sense of power from one's natural reliance on meat, something not processed or packaged, but sold directly to the consumer. And I think this image crafts a larger idea of the self and allows a person to embody these characteristics and to be seen as by their peers as having these powers or identity um, that is bestowed onto them by the food. So I want to explore diets a little bit more in a minute, but I'm just curious, um, do you think from the research that you've done, um, is HelloFresh fixing a problem or creating a problem? I don't, I don't think they're fixing a problem. Um, I think they've found a gap in the neoliberal society and they have found their target audience and they've said, this is what people want. But HelloFresh is reliant on the worker, on the constantly busy worker in the neoliberal economy um, to want to have these convenient meals and want to have these ready-made accessible meals that aren't the nasty quality or suggest the laziness of the microwave meals or fast food dinners. HelloFresh allows you to pick whatever your dietary needs are. I mean, it, it offers vegetarian, it, it says low carb, so this would work for someone on keto or if you eat both carbs and meat. Um, it really 
caters towards your um, dietary preferences. What a lot of the advertising around um, their food is really just marketed on how healthy it is. And one thing I really examine is how YouTubers present. So people are film themselves doing doing their HelloFresh meal? Yeah. So I, I use an example in my analysis of a YouTuber um, called Sarah's Day, who's a health and fitness influencer. Um, and the video I analyze is sponsored by HelloFresh. So all who subscribe to her channel or all who come across this link um, will see that HelloFresh is a part of her day. I mean, she even entitles this video of what I eat in a day. And so because she presents the HelloFresh dinner as a part of her day, um, people begin to believe through this anecdotal advertising that HelloFresh is one of the keys to her incredibly fit body and her incredibly successful life. Um, early in the video, she says that she's trying to get her body back in shape and you know, she eats a HelloFresh meal and there becomes a correlation in the language she uses and the HelloFresh meal and how that kind of comes to comes to represent a large part of her healthy, her healthy lifestyle. Okay. So I want to dig a little bit more into, in, in, into healthy diets and, and, and um, move, move into talking about the keto diet, because I know that's, that's the focus of your, is it a thesis or an MRP that you're doing? It's an MRP. MRP. Okay. So, um, so I know that that's that's the focus, and you're you're really getting into or starting to get into your into your research at at this point. So, um, for anyone who may not be familiar with the keto diet, uh, kind of what is what is the keto diet? How long has it been around? Because I, I think it's been around for a little while now, but I'm not sure when I first heard of it. <laughs> Yeah, so the keto diet or the ketogenic diet is based on high fat and low carbs. So the diet's main focus is on animal-based consumption and animal-based products. Um, a lot of times the diet is kind of compared to the caveman diet because there's not a lot else you eat other than meat in this diet. It's, it's truly um, a lot of steak, a lot of bacon. Um, is it, is it focused around any, any particular celebrities, do you know, or, um, or a celebrity doctor, like who's, who, who might be, be promoting it? Yeah. So um, one of, one of the, I suppose you could say celebrities, I'm looking at is Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson. Um, they heavily promote the keto diet as the only way to live your healthy lifestyle. The only thing that works. Um, yeah. Okay. So we're going to dive into some, uh, <laughs> some tricky waters here because um, Joe Rogan has certainly been in the news a lot at time of recording um, because of his podcast that is now on Spotify. Um, so how, how, how does this idea of a keto diet fit in with, um, fit in with this, I, I guess we'll call them a subgroup maybe of, of people who, who, um, buy into, um, the ideas that, that he's presenting. 
Yeah, for sure. So I think first you have to recognize that keto is responding to a gap in the neoliberal society. Um, so as I said, neoliberalism is positioned as being a market-oriented, privatized economy. But in practice, neoliberalism is a theory that advocates for self-sufficiency and self-reliance as a response to the negative social effects like precarity and inequality that it unwittingly engenders in its own policies. So what people get out of keto is a sense of stability, security, and power that is not easily attainable within the neoliberal economy. And keto demands that people take responsibility for their own food resources rather than maintaining a reliance on the food industry. So processed foods within the discourse tend to be framed as artificial and derivative when compared to what is claimed as the primitive naturalness of meat. So is it tapping into this um, idea that you're going to like go out in your in your backyard and butcher your own cow or go hunting for like a bison or like, is there um, aspirational fantasy almost aspect to it? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what the keto discourse wants you to do because there is a distrust and a lack of reliance on government and on social institutions that have not helped you um, this far, it wants you to take control. It wants you to do these things for yourself. I know that you're dying to explore the um, some some of these some of these connections with the alt right, which is really really timely um, because certainly what we're seeing here in Canada around vaccine protests and um, COVID fatigue. And um, we're seeing it, I know, in other countries as well, um, where, where we're seeing this, this pushback against, against the social institutions and whatnot. So I'm really interested in this idea of how diet and what we eat um, is, is political, I guess, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So there is this distrust with the state and this framing of non-meat products as somehow unnatural. And what comes with this and with the alt-right discourse as well is that somehow mainstream culture is somehow deeply fake or feminized. And so we see these two discourses, keto and the alt-right, really merge within the tensions of neoliberalism, where someone and I explore, I explore specifically how white men react and are trying to find a sense of purpose and identity um, that they can construct because of both the alt-right and keto discourse. And so I examine how the male body, as it consumes meat, is framed as having these keto-enhanced abilities, so strength and superior health, compared to that of what Angela Nagel calls the normie in her text, Kill All Normies, um, that ate a person when navigating a reality um, that is naturalized by the neoliberal by the neoliberal precarious state. So keto is reminiscent of a time when men hunted their own food, as we as we discussed, characterized by primitiveness and self-sufficiency. Um, the fantasy of having the raw and primitive 
survival, the pseudo self-reliant lifestyle as it manifests through one's transgressive behaviors separates from mainstream societal norms um, is reached by subscribing to the extremes of keto and the alt-right values in these transgressive narratives that allow someone to find their own sense of individual identity within these what feels to be a constraining society. Okay. So what about women in keto? Um, I know from what I've heard of keto, it's always, it's, I think it's almost always been men talking about keto. I'm not sure I've ever, and I mean, it could just be a reflection of the circles I move in. I'm not sure I've ever heard women talking about doing the keto diet. Um, is there pickup, uh, among women or is it um, very much male? From my research thus far, it is a largely male discourse and lar largely male community, but that isn't to say that women don't pick up on it. A lot of the research I've, I've done has been women saying why keto hasn't worked for them. So coming back to this idea of um, diet as a as a response to instability and things you um, can't control. Do you think, I know that you're still, you're still getting into your research, so you may not have quite gotten to, gotten to this question, but has there been any correlation um, perhaps between a rise in keto or the popularity of keto and a lot of the stability that we're, the, political and social instability that we're seeing um, since since the pandemic? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. I, I honestly haven't come across that in my research. But in saying that, I mean, Joe Rogan is a very prominent supporter of the keto diet. Jordan Peterson promotes the keto diet. And these figures who are currently, you know, in the midst of these anti-mask, anti-vaccine trucker convoy, these movements that are gaining traction and gaining momentum and are being followed. I, I can't imagine that people wouldn't subscribe further to their ideologies. I, I think I would have to track that across a long term. I think it would be really interesting in five years to kind of see what the statistics are on that. Does does keto have the online Instagram culture around it um, that we were talking about with with, with HelloFresh, and and what what if anything have you have have you seen there? Yeah, so Instagram not specifically. Um, Instagram seems to be this more feminized space, or at least is um, described and positioned as being this more feminized space. Um, Keto really seems to flourish on spaces like Reddit and 4chan um, and Facebook and these narratives that are more easily accessible and maybe are a little more anonymous because they don't necessarily have to include a picture um, along with the post. That's interesting. Those are those are some some interesting corners corners of of the internet, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, it's really frustrating to work with 
sometimes. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about that um, because one of the things I, I, I like to do in my conversations with researchers is kind of like, you know, pull back the curtain <laughs> a little bit and um, get some insight on what it's like to do to do research. And you are dealing with some highly controversial um, figures in Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson. Um, you're dealing with a very volatile community um, and you're reading um, a lot of social media stuff that is aimed at drawing you in um, and, and, and influencing your, your thoughts. So I'm just, I'm just curious how, how you manage that as a person and how, uh, and, and, and as a researcher and maybe how, how you keep yourself balanced, I guess, and your research balanced as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think when I began this research, I didn't think it would be so challenging to really engage with this alt-right narrative or just even instances or seeds or crumbs. That's where I want um, to engage with the crumbs of the alt-right narrative, not even the whole thing at once. But it's really frustrating to see how easily it is for people to fall into this persuasive narrative. And the persuasive rhetoric they use targets people who don't have this stability within their own lives or are looking for security and they find their sense of belonging in this transgressive movement that doesn't need anyone's approval they have their own little subgroup taking taking on this research it really felt at moments where I was like oh I have to solve I have to solve this problem it's taking on this research it really feels like you have to address all of the issues that come up. It feels like you have to educate or talk to or expose the problems within the discourse, but that's too much for one person to take on. And one thing I am incredibly grateful for is talking with my peers, talking with my supervisor about what I'm seeing and knowing I'm not alone in A, how I'm feeling about the rhetoric that I am having to engage with um, and taking, taking steps back from the research itself. I, I always do a palate cleanser before I move on to any other work or before I talk with my, my close family or my close friends because they don't want my built-up anger coming out in that and they it, they shouldn't have to experience that <laughs> that's that's a lot like that's that's um that's a big and heavy topic to 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 get into so I am curious I usually ask this at the beginning of the episode but I was so excited to talk to talk about HelloFresh and hear hear about your ideas that I completely forgot um and we and of course we had spoken earlier but um so how how did you come to study this like what <laughs> I don't think it would be my first choice. I might go with with maybe something a little more um, calm and relaxing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely not what you think of when you hear that I'm an English grad student. If there's, it takes a lot of people by surprise when they go, "Oh, you're not studying Shakespeare. You're not studying Milton." No, I'm not. <laughs> um, I mean. 
my my supervisor Andrew Pendakis has been so supportive in all of my research in all of my in all of these paths that I want to explore and it's more of a cultural studies project which is Andrew's focus as well um, and, and it kind of came into fruition because of the class I actually took with Pendakis on neoliberal theory and I just love the idea of economics I couldn't be an economics student to save my life but I really believe that economics impacts every factor of our life how we're able to engage with others socially our our personal lives like everything it, it influences every single aspect and the fact that as an English student I was then able I was given the I was given the language to engage with this side really spoke to me um, and I mean, with the, the all right narrative being so prominent right now, I think it's hard to almost avoid, especially at my age, I'm, I'm 22 right now. And it's, it's constantly being thrown our way on social media in the news. I mean, when I came to really engage with politics, Trump was president. And I mean, you have to engage with that rhetoric you have to understand the rhetoric you disagree with and I think that's one of the most important things for me is that if I'm going to disagree with something I have to fully understand it and I have to know why I'm disagreeing with it and how I can back up my own beliefs in that um, and then for the keto aspect food's always been such a a huge part of my life I think diet culture impacts everyone um, in one way or another. I always use the example that when you gather around with friends or family, you're usually gathered around food. And food is so expensive. <laughs> like, let's be real here. And I, I think I saw these three things coming together in my close friends and family's lives. And I really wanted to unpack why this identity was kind of coming out and coming that's really interesting. I think what your research, and I mean, we, I hear this with, with so many of, of the people that, that, that I interview is like a lot of the humanities subjects really let you explore these topics that you would associate, you know, with math or science or, um, economics or business, um, from, from a different perspective and to think about them, um, really critically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, I always maintain that there's, that there's a humanities course for everybody, like no matter how, how non-humanities you think you are, um, there, there, there's a course for you, um, that intersects with, with your own, with, with your own interests. So did you do your, your undergrad degree at Brock as well, or, um, did I you did. go elsewhere? Yeah. No, I did my undergrad at Brock um, as well. So I'm, I'm very familiar with the campus, with the professors. The, the whole English faculty is so supportive. Um, as I said, my supervisor, Andrew Pendakis, is so supportive of all my crazy ideas. Um, 
And I just have the best support system here as well with the MA cohort I'm in. Um, we are inseparable. We are super close. And I definitely would not have made it through the MA or made it this far in the MA at least without them, for sure. Yeah. Alex was talking about that as well. So either you guys compared notes or you're, <laughs> you're, uh, <laughs> you're, you're genuinely big fans. <laughs> when in your undergrad did you start considering grad school as a possibility? And, like, and, and, and what was it about the idea of doing grad school that appealed to you? Because it's an, it's another year of of university. It's a full it's it's a full year, kind of September to August, um, and it is a lot of work. It's a pretty intense experience. I don't I don't need to tell you that, but just for our audience's background, so you got to be dedicated. So so what uh, what what piqued your interest? Yeah, I, I think there was always something. In the back of my mind, I always knew I wanted to do grad school. I've already applied for my doctorate, actually. So another four years, <laughs> hopefully. Um, but I, I love the research process. I'm being given the space to think through what I am seeing happen around me culturally through my research really has really helped me develop as a person come I think into a stronger sense of who I am where my beliefs are as a person um so was there a particular course or something somebody said that 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 you were like yeah I gotta do this yeah so this podcast is really just gonna be one big shout out to Andrew Pendakis um (laughs) (laughs) that's okay we're here for it (laughs) in um in second year he he sat me down. We we were having one-on-one meetings throughout the class. We were having one-on-one meetings and he sat me down and he said, have you ever thought of grad school? I said, yeah. And then, then we just got talking about it. And he's like, and you should do it here at Brock. Like, I can supervise. <laughs> so that's always been in the back of my mind. And then in fourth year, um, when I had Andrew both semesters, um, I basically just went to his office hours every week and we we talked about my proposal we talked about what the ma would look like we he really helped me get a sense of what i'd be getting myself into like you said it's intense um i don't think any amount of preparation would have prepared me for how intense the ma is but just his support his belief in my work I I took a class with him in which this HelloFresh presentation developed out of. It was uh, rhetoric analysis. And I was being challenged to engage with texts that I hadn't considered. So things, so, so, so you found yourself dealing with, with um, texts that you wouldn't have encountered otherwise? Yeah. Or or texts I wouldn't have considered to even engage with just generally. I mean, one of our texts was the Bible. One of our texts was um, the Communist Manifesto. And to really rip apart the rhetoric and how these texts were doing what they were doing. And I think that really gave me a solid base to kind of move forward into the MA as well. So it really, I think, set me up and prepared me and gave me a lot of confidence because... So... 
what kinds of advice might you have given yourself or would you think about giving to to somebody who, who might be listening to this might and, and and might be thinking about grad school do it honestly it's it's a lot of work but i don't regret a single moment of it um, one thing i wish i kind of prepared myself more with was exactly what my research was going to be but then also balancing that out with not overwhelming myself. Over the summer, I, I read about 12 books on neoliberalism, on diet culture, and that was exhausting. And you don't, you don't want to do that in preparation for eight months of heavy, heavy coursework. Um, it's, it's really just finding your balance and finding your people. Yeah. And, and I suppose with it being a one-year program and, and, and being that, that intense, um, you really do have to get into your topic and get working on it fairly quickly. (laughs) Yeah. It's always in the back of my mind It's the work now, you know, early February has really started to ramp up. Um, so you're really seeing, the research process unfold, which is terrifying, but so exciting all at once. So in terms of your research process, we've talked about um, that you've been looking at advertising and videos and, and, and social media. Um, is it a lot of those kinds of primary sources? Is, um, a lot, is there a lot of secondary sources? Um, are you doing any interviews or anything like that? Um, as part of your research? Yeah, so my primary sources are um, mostly online social media sources. So I am using the Joe Rogan podcast. I am looking at some Reddit forums, um, but I'm backing this all up with, um, for example, Jennifer M. Silva's text coming up short on neoliberalism. Um, as I mentioned, in Angela Nagel's text, Kill All Normies, um, that situates the alt-right narrative, theoretically. So it's taking the um, the complex academic ideas, um, so so to speak, and 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 applying them to primary source material that you have gathered from the plethora that is out there. On yeah. The- <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned PhD plans and that you've already put an application in. Um, so that's kind of exciting, maybe a little bit scary. I don't know. Um, what are your, and you can be as specific or as vague as you want with this, um, kind of what what are your current thoughts or plans that, that you have um, for PhD? What are you, is it going to be more looking at more alt-right and social media and diet culture, or are you going to veer off into something else? Yeah, so my plan right now is to expand the the keto research um, to look more at a to look at it as more of a cultural, social, and identity crisis almost. So thank you so much for joining us today. And um, you've certainly made me hungry and it's just about lunchtime as as we're recording. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, rocku.ca slash humanities. Forward is hosted and produced by Alison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Sound assistance for this episode is provided by Mitch Kogan. Theme music is by Khalid Imam. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.